From Muhlenberg College, this is 2400 Chew. In each episode of this podcast, we talk to one Muhlenberg graduate about their current work and the industry in which that work is done. My name is Sofia Echeverria, and for this episode, Lauren Anderson spoke with Ross Handler, class of 2014. Ross is working as a lawyer and LGBTQ community activist in Washington, D.C. As with all of these interviews, our conversation begins by asking how and when Ross became interested in his occupation. I mean, I kind of knew that I always wanted to be an attorney. For me, it just felt like that was the right thing to do. Muhlenberg has a very solid way of preparing you to to go to law school. I mean, I think one of the great things that Muhlenberg does is it teaches you to write and to think in a way that's analytical. Um, And I think that prepares you well for your first year of law school and, and kind of moving forward. And I just think that there were courses such as Dr. Herrick's International Law Course that made me think, okay, like I enjoy this subset of international relations, or I enjoy this subset of political science. And here is a real life application of it in the legal field. So it's not like the two are totally separate that you can either pursue one or the other and there's no crossover. I mean, even in my time as a a lawyer for financial institutions, I've had the the honor of representing uh, former heads of state. Um, not in financial institution matters, but in criminal defense matters before the International Court of Human Rights um, and the Inter-American Court of Human Rights. I mean, those for me have been like, I don't want to say the the most fun opportunities, but I mean, certainly the most interesting because it allowed me to kind of, I guess, marry my interests of being an attorney, but also saying like, okay, like I, I didn't just get that master's in international affairs and never touch it again that for me, it was kind of a way to bridge the two and actually like rely on my knowledge of international affairs and and international organizations and international tribunals and and be able to inform a client like, hey, this is what we're gonna do. This is why we're pursuing this avenue and let's go do this thing. Well, and that's, I'm glad you brought that in Ross because one of the things, you know, you talk about being a lawyer and that you always felt you wanted to do that, but you just kind of slid past right up until now, the fact that you went, after you left Muhlenberg and you did a dual track degree mm-hmm. at AU. And it's not just law school, you went for your master's as well. And I think that that's just really exceptional. Can you talk a little bit about that and about how you found it managing two degree programs at the same time? I, and I say this kind of in a, in a tongue in cheek way. I always found the master's to be my like vacation and respite from the, the law degree. Because I mean, at, at law school, it's just, it's, getting a degree after undergrad is it's a job i mean law school is a full-time job and for me it was like i first chose american university for law school because they had a top five program for international law and at the time that's what i thought i wanted to go into so i started by just saying okay like here's where we're going to go um and then after i applied i i heard about their dual jdma program and i was like oh well here's my opportunity to get a master and i mean you do it at the same time the credits kind of overlap and in terms of a cost-benefit analysis, I wasn't going to end up paying a lot more money to get the dual degree. So I figured three and a half years, let me take care of this and get it done. And for me, it was nice because I got to work with practitioners in the field who had law backgrounds, but also understood how the law applied to the field of international relations. So for example, some of my professors, they worked at the U.S. Institute for Peace. They were former ambassadors themselves. 
so it was nice to be able to say like, okay, well, here's what I'm doing at law school. Here's what I want to do in the future. How do I get there? And there were many great conversations that I had with them about going to the State Department, um, working as a counselor to international organizations. And I've never ruled that out. 10 years from now, who knows what we're all going to be doing. So I think for me, I just always wanted to know that in my back pocket, I had the master's so that if and when I wanted to move to an international organization or, or work on a board or something like that, that I had the skill set to go do that and not just say, well, I'm a lawyer, take me at my word that I can do this. Well, and you did more than that, too, because you took that sense of community that you had at Muhlenberg and built upon. Mm-hmm. But when you got into your dual track program, you still even working for two degrees, you still managed to be very fully engaged on campus and off. And maybe you can touch mm-hmm. on that a little bit as well. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, one of the first things I did was I joined Law Review. And then in my second year of law school, I was elected to be editor in chief. So, I mean, that was an incredible honor. And no one really prepares you for managing 70 peers, not alone, and let alone 70 peers who are just as opinionated in type A as you are. It was a really good way to meet people and to learn how people worked and to learn how to manage people. And I mean, if you ask me four years now out of law school, who are your best friends? The, my best friends are the people who I met on Law Review. And just because that outside of the hours that you're spending in the library and the hours you're spending in class, I guess third comes the hours you spend in the Law Review office. Um, because I mean, you're publishing four or five books a year, you're editing the, the review cover to cover. I mean, you can spot a sentence or two sentences that have one space versus two spaces in between it from a mile away. Being a part of something in a, in a way that's a little bit different too, because I mean, you're contributing to the, to I guess like the academic and, and scholarship output of the, the law school, but at the same time, it's the kind of a, a sales career too, because I mean, you want the best and the brightest professors and the best and brightest scholars to write for your law review. So, I mean, this whole time you're trying to make the law review better, to make it more well-read, to make it more subscribed to, so that these preeminent scholars who are, who are wanting to write about administrative law and their scholarship interests, that they want to write for you. The, the one selling point about the, the law review is that administrative law really is like, I think the way that I sold it to the incoming law students during like the journal orientation night was like through a Lion King reference where all the light touches is administrative law. Because, I mean, that's from government to uh, healthcare to really everything. It's based on government administration and, and how rules and regulations kind of impact um, what you're going to do. And that was one of my favorite things I did in law school, I think. And then in addition to that, I was in the Alternative Dispute Resolution Society. Um, and I was vice president of that. That's one of the honor societies in law school that you can do along with moot quarter mock trial. But I wanted the ADR because for me, I wanted that alternative international aspect to dispute resolution. So I mean, ADR is everything from mediation to negotiation, arbitration, um, and and everything in between. And and one of the benefits pre-COVID was that you could go and compete in international competition. So I went to the International uh, Chamber of Commerce in Paris, and I represented my law school with three of my friends. we made it pretty far into the competition, but we didn't win. But at the same time, it was incredible to meet so many students from other universities around the world and also to be in Paris for two weeks and the people compete and learn from them and, and learn how this alternative form of dispute resolution kind of really is how things get done. Because 
prior to going in law, into law school, everyone thinks like, oh, I'll be in court every day or I'll be in trial. And the statistic when I entered law school was only 3% of cases go to trial. And I'm pretty sure that that number is lower these days because litigation is just so costly. So I mean, nine times out of 10, you're gonna be in a room uh, across the table from the other party and you're gonna try to hash out what you think should happen. And I mean, in DC at least, for example, if you're in landlord tenant court, the judge won't let you get to trial first unless you've gone through mediation or negotiation. So I think from that point of view, I just wanted to hone skills that would benefit me down the road. Going back to, I guess, the original question, for me, I'm never just going to be a student. I'm never just going to be an employee. I think that if you want, really want to get the best out of your experience and also be able to give back in a meaningful way, you, you can't do that without being a part of the community. Well, and that's, and one other thing before we move on to a question that I think you, you hit the nail on the head right there is you also, even with all those things that were helping you to grow professionally and personally, you made the time, even in that, with that schedule, to be a mentor with Lambda Law as well. Yeah. So um, in the legal profession, I mean, there's no hiding the fact that it has a diverse, but one of the things that we can do as, as law students and as, and as young attorneys is mentor those who are coming up to the ranks, just like we did, who come from diverse backgrounds. So Lambda Law is for um, LGBTQ plus lawyers. And the whole point of it is so that someone who's a, a 1L or a 2L and that they can have a relationship with someone who is either graduating or just graduated so that like you can more or less like teach them the ropes, like teach them how to write an outline for a class or how to navigate office hours or how to pick which journal to, to apply to and, and everything in between. And I mean, it's, it's kind of just, it's even more than that. I mean, it's, it's for like those gut check questions that we often have, but we never want to ask someone like, okay, well, like, how do I write this? Or like, how do I overcome this obstacle? And I mean, I had mentors in law school too from the Lambda Law Group. For me, they were the ones who both lit a fire under me, but also put me at ease. They would walk me through the library and they'd be like, well, see that person over there? Like they're stressing themselves out. Like, don't be like them. But like, mm -hmm. see that person who has a head on the desk and they're sleeping? Also, don't be like them. So, I mean, it, it was just this kind of um, a relationship where since you're coming from a similar background and you've experienced similar obstacles to success, you get it. And it's, and it's a way to cut through the, I guess, the red tape of mm -hmm. getting from point A to point B. And I mean, that firsthand experiential knowledge is just the real benefit. So, I mean, for me, even now as a young attorney, I mean, I'll, I'll review resumes. I'll tell people how to um, approach what I guess we would call now a career fair. Um, even though I've never needed to do one virtually, I can only imagine that that would not be nearly as fun as meeting someone in person. But I mean, I, I still, like I said, read resumes, coach people on how to go through interviews and, and the questions to ask and, and stuff like that. And I mean, I think it's important because if, if someone's not teaching you that, then you're at a disadvantage. And, and one thing that I've always thought about law school at, in retrospect is that it teaches you a lot of like the soft theoretical skills. but it also prepares you for law in a way that makes you think that everything you ever write for a partner at a law firm is going to be this 25 page memo. When in, in actuality, everything is just like, hey, can you get me a, a two paragraph concise email that I can then forge the client? Stuff like that, I think really helps. And when you have the ability to say like, okay, this is what people tell you, how people tell you it is, but then this is actually how it's going to be. To me, that's always been the, the best help I've ever gotten. 
Well, and that's also a perfect segue because it would be great to hear from you a little bit about what your current focus is at work. And if you can talk about what a typical day looks like, if there is such a thing as a typical day for you. So sure, I'm an associate at Cooley LLP and I am a, I'm, I guess I'm in the FinTech services regulatory group. And basically what we do is we counsel FinTech, non-banks and financial services institutions on a whole host of compliance issues, um, both in the sense of state regulators and federal regulators. Um, if you're asking me for like my quote unquote expertise, which is um, I help clients get money transmissions, state and federal consumer and commercial lending licenses, counseling them on how to regulate their products once they hit the open market. At a firm like Cooley, you get the best clients, you get the emerging clients, you get the trendy clients. And nine times out of 10, what I guess what the client asks is a saying like, hey, I'm this tech company, I wanna put out this product. Um, it has a financial services underpinning to it. How do I not get nabbed by the regulators when I put this out? How do I operate within the state guidelines and within the federal guidelines? And it's always kind of funny when they ask that because sometimes they'll get an email that says like, well, how does this look in the States? And you need to remind them there's 50 of them. So there's always this like, well, it's, it's not necessarily like a, a sweet and short answer because New York is very different from Massachusetts and different from California and, every, and so on and so forth. But what I like about this particular area of law is that it's constantly evolving. Because if you ask me in law school what I wanted to do or where I saw myself in five years, it probably would not have been at a financial services firm doing this kind of work. But in my third year of law school, I clerked for a firm that was one of the best in the nation. And they did financial services work. That was their subset of work that they did. So, I mean, that's how I kind of got my start. And then ever since then, I actually found that I really do find this work interesting because of how it constantly evolves. The type of work we do for our clients, too, I, I also find interesting in that it's not just like write a brief or answer this question. I mean, like oftentimes we're getting asked questions that there's no real answer to. So, I mean, at the same time, like we're getting these questions and then three or four years after a product launches, the, the odds are is that our legal counsel plus the new product features of this product from the client created new financial services law or a new oversight paradigm. I mean, especially when you think of in this industry within the past five, six years, I mean, 10 years ago, no one knew what Venmo was. PayPal wasn't as big as it was. But I mean, the fact that these products and these clients came to market and the lawyers did what they did, now they're ubiquitous with credit card companies. So I mean, I, I think the fact that this field constantly evolves and presents new questions on a daily basis is what makes it most interesting. That said, I guess my typical day-to-day -day is not incredibly typical unless I'm working on a project that's incredibly long-term or, or something like that. Rarely do I start a week knowing exactly what's going to happen. I mean, I don't think any of us do anymore, but it's answering client emails, working collaboratively uh, with my clients and my colleagues and answering their questions that they have um, that more or less change on a whim. I mean, there's days that I'll be working with clients and they'll email a prompt at 10 a.m. in the morning. And then by three, that prompt is no longer good because they've met with business and they figured out that the product are going to operate differently. So I think it's kind of just um, anticipating what they want, anticipating how the business and the industry will react to their product, making sure that along the way that they remain compliant. What mm -hmm. changes have you seen 
in your industry, in your work on a day-to-day -day basis since COVID? And how do you think that's impacted how you view your work? When I started this all back in 2017, which wasn't too long ago, payday lending and short-term loans had a bad name and they still kind of do. But we've seen with COVID that a lot of the banks are actually getting back into this territory. And we're not calling them payday loans anymore because that's, I mean, we, we outlawed payday loans. But this short-term small dollar lending, I think is becoming increasingly important for people who are cash-strapped and who need access to credit who otherwise might not get it. So I think COVID has forced us to re-examine the way that consumers both obtain credit and are sought out as debtors. So I, I think that that's going to be a big thing. Is, I mean, as the economy turns around quickly, it may be a different story. But from what I heard, even if it does, we're not going to flip a switch and people aren't going to be able to pay bills all of a sudden again. So I think that there's going to be a good deal of regulation with small dollar loans. And there's already banks that are getting into it because it's what people need it. I mean, there's, there's always a business purpose behind doing it, but at the same time, the, the question from the regulators is, okay, well, if someone's cash strapped right now and they don't have the best credit for it, but they need to pay bills, like through the regular traditional credit channels, they're not going to get that loan. So how do we still get them the money they need? Because at the end of the day, just because they're not able to get a traditional credit loan doesn't mean that they still don't need the credit. So, I mean, I think for them, it's going to be this kind of balance between of getting people the money they need and the time frame they need it, but also not hurting the consumer on the back end. Um, and I think the fact that you've seen this push from the regulators to actually to lend small dollar loans, but obviously in an incredibly responsible manner, that in and of itself says something. Because under the Obama administration, that would have never happened. Because the, the regulators at that point were so consumer focused that the thought of even doing small dollar lending was just not even on on the horizon but now we need it so i think that's going to be uh, something that's interesting and then also one of the other big trends in the industry is regular companies entering into consumer lending everything from point of sale like i don't know if you've ever shopped at a store and then either at checkout online or in person they were like well okay your bill today is 850 dollars you can either pay us 850 dollars today or through a firm or another point of sale credit lender, consumer credit lender, um, you can finance this purchase over a period of months at zero interest. That's a new way to get people credit quickly and to let them buy big purchases that they otherwise wouldn't be able to if they had to put the bill in one fell swoop. I think those have been, if you were to stay in your short career, like what are two things that surprised you that happened or you've found most interesting? It would be the return of small dollar lending and all of these options now for financing of consumer purchases at checkout. Talk to us a little bit about your favorite parts of what you do and also what some of your biggest challenges are. And you can speak about that certainly in the context of your job at the law firm, but also with your community activism work, because I, I think it's really important. I love that you do this and I would love to emphasize for everyone listening mm -hmm. that it's not only possible, but it's important to have a rich life that includes what you're doing to get paid as well as what you're doing to contribute to being a good human. Let's start with the, the volunteer work. So one of my favorite organizations to, to volunteer with here in Washington, D.C. is Whitman Walker Health and Legal Services. And it's an organization that's been around for quite some time. And it's, it's D.C. based and, and its origins are based in the D.C. community from before, I think it was the maybe in the 70s and 80s. 
it is a health and legal services group that brings health and legal services to otherwise disadvantaged and marginalized communities here in the Washington DC area. And one of my favorite things that I enjoy doing with them are the name and gender change clinics for their LGBTQ clients. And I think it, it always surprises me kind of when we're, when we're working on these counseling sessions. And it, it always surprises me because I think if, if I were wanting to change my name, that I would want it to be an easy process, that it, it's not an easy process for these people to, to do what they want to do and to live their authentic lives and be their authentic selves. And I think for me that it's always a bit disheartening. DC is, is one of the more progressive jurisdictions. I mean, at these clinics, we, we do the DMV area. So it's the District of Columbia, Maryland, and Virginia. And DC was the first one who was like, if you want to put an X on your driver's license to denote a um, gender, by all means, go ahead and do it. And then we get clients who in Maryland um, need to publish in a newspaper that they want to go ahead and change their name. And I just think it's unfortunate because, I mean, this is something that's personal. This is something that they felt for such a long time. And then to be like, oh, by the way, like, you need to go publish this so that if there's a creditor out there or someone who doesn't want you to go do it, that like they, they get their chance to speak. And it, it's like, why? I mean, this is a personal choice. Like, why does someone genders it? Why does someone's gender identity need to be an event, an issue that somehow impacts someone else's life? And I, I just think that's wholly unreasonable and just uh, unfortunate. But I mean, there's ways we get around that. We ask for waivers, we petition the court. And I mean, oftentimes we're successful, but at the same time, I, it's just these hoops to jump through that you still got to do. And I mean, the laws are just not where they need to be. Um, they're still archaic for something that's seemingly, at least in, in some aspects of the legal field in the United States, becoming seemingly ubiquitous, seemingly commonplace. And I think that the, the state legislatures just kind of need a, to, to get with the program and work with people to do give them the rights and, and the, the life that they want and deserve. And then with the legal counsel for the elderly, I've learned the DC housing code back and front to represent these individuals in court and, and kind of work with them to address their housing needs. And only when you need to read the housing code, do you realize how low of a bar it creates for landlords to make their apartments quote unquote hospitable. Like things that I take for granted, hot water, running water, um, AC, electricity. I mean, yes, those things are mentioned in the housing code, but in no instance are they fully required. Or if, for example, a, a landlord doesn't provide it for an period of days, does someone get concession on their rent? I mean, you go to these homes and people are saying, I haven't had hot water for 35 days. And, and one of my clients, she hadn't had hot water for, she wrote down every day on her calendar, she did not have hot water. Just went on for months. And I mean, no matter what she did, no matter who she called, no matter how many times she wrote the apartment company, nothing got fixed. And it's unfortunate that you need to have a complaint for hot water put on the letterhead of a big law firm for someone to take notice. But it also makes me feel good that like I, I can help someone do that. But then the immediate afterthought is, okay, well, I helped this one person in DC. How many other people are in her same situation? And odds are there's thousands of them, but they're not being connected with the right resources. They're not being connected with the people who have the, the means and the time to help them. And I think for me, one of the issues of being a, a lawyer and seeing it from the side of a client and the side of a lawyer himself is that we provide a service that not everyone has access to. 
And I think for me that that's one of the, the downfalls of the profession. And I think why, I guess, I don't want to say mandatory pro bono, but like some firms require you to give 50 to 100 hours of your pro bono time a year. And I think that firms need to do that and they need to really emphasize the good that that kind of time can do because there's so many lawyers in DC. I mean, when I came here, it was one in every 10. And when I graduated law school, it's one in every nine. So one of every nine people in the District of Columbia is an attorney. And we need every single one of them to make sure that people in the community have access to their services and access to the resources that we have because, because they just do. Because they need that time, they need that help. And we're in a, a privileged position to be able to, to help people. And I think for me, that's one of the things that I enjoy doing most. When I volunteer with those organizations, I mean, I, I take those cases just as seriously as I do a client who's a Fortune 500 company paying a lot of money to create a new product. And I think when you approach it that way, that's when you get your best results. What are the things about what you're doing on a daily basis that you don't like? You've got a lot of great <laughs> things that you do like, but what is something that you have to slog through? Or is a challenge for you because it's not your favorite thing? Because if we're going to help educate students and people to understand, you know, what your life is like, your, your career path, why you chose it, there's mm -hmm. really a lot of upsides. But talk a little bit about some of the things that aren't an upside, at least for you. I mean, I think one of the things that law school doesn't necessarily prepare you for is just the number of administrative tasks that you need to do as an attorney on a given, on a given day. You don't realize until you have 30 or 40 of those things on your list, how often that eats up time during your day. And I mean, people know this or people probably don't know this, but I mean, law firms and attorneys, you, you bill your time. So I mean, when you're working, you are productive. And when you're doing those administrative tasks, like, yes, you're still, you're still getting to the end of an assignment or, or helping it across the finish line, but you're, you're not billing for it. Um, so I mean, I think, no one really prepares you for like the, the time management that is required of you on a daily basis. Because if a firm gives you say, at, like when you're interviewing at firms and you get an offer, they say, okay, well, we expect associates to annualize 21, 2200 hours a year. And you think, oh, that's not bad. But then when you think of how many hours a day that you need to, to work to do that, and then it's not like if you factor in like, okay, well, uh, I'll need to work a, a 55 hour week this week. So that's 10 and some odd hours a day, but that's 10 and odd some hours of straight billing. That doesn't take into account the, the reading client emails, the, the prepping for meetings. You're working probably a, a 12 to 14 hour day if you wanna bill that kind of time. So, I mean, I think it, it's just, I love being a lawyer, but, I think law school makes you think that it's going to be this like glamorous profession and it is in, in most ways, but I mean, in other ways, it's a, it's a demanding job where the need to perform is constant. But I mean that if you ask me though, like, is, is that particular to being a lawyer? No, because I mean, I have friends who aren't lawyers and I mean, I have friends who are doctors and businesswomen and businessmen. And I mean, they're putting in the same hours. They're dealing with similar client needs and and at the end of the day, though, I, I wouldn't say it's like a, a, a downside as much as it's just a, a mindset that you need to, to constantly keep up on. Because if you bill 60-hour weeks for three or four months, I mean, sometimes like 
you can get burnt out. I mean, that hasn't happened to me yet, but at the same time, like, I think honing those time management skills, but also being mindful so that you're not just running through assignments and running through tasks, like, like muscle memory and just being like, okay, like I have this list of hundred things to do, like it needs to be done today. Each client, I mean, they're paying for your work. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, this other needs to be an inherent value and that inherent value is like your analysis and your thought process. And if you, if you were to just make it muscle memory and churning out one thing after another, first of all, you're not learning as an attorney. And then secondly, your, your work product is going to suffer. And that actually brings me to one other point is that like, you need to keep current and that's not a downside. It, it's a challenge though, because I mean, you're trying to find time in a day to learn something that yesterday you didn't know. And you don't always have the time to do that. But one of the things that my law firm does particularly well is um, we emphasize thought leadership. So when an article comes out from a regulator or when something big in the industry is happening, like, yes, Law 360 and Above the Law and, and Law.com and National Law Review, they all write their own like two cents about what's going on. But we then take that information and synthesize it in a way that our clients can understand it and that's uh, more applicable to them. So, I mean, it, it's constantly a, a job to keep up with what's happening in the industry and making sure that your clients are aware of it too, because just because I know it doesn't mean that a bank knows it. And the bank is the one who's going to be liable at the end of the day for either breaking a rule or following it. So, I mean, getting that information in their hands in a way that is digestible and easily interpreted so that their compliance department can say, okay, like, well, there's a new regulation on consumer loans in Illinois and like, we need a cap of a 36% interest rate. So like starting when this bill goes into effect, like that, that's what needs to happen. But the challenges though, in my industry, I think are also good challenges to have. Needing to keep up with legal news is, is a privilege. Needing to work long hours and get clients the results they want is a privilege. While it's demanding, um, you can't lose sight of the fact that it's not just hours. It's not just time you're billing. Because for every client email that I get with a new question that I haven't yet encountered, that's something that I'm teaching myself. So I mean, so the next time a client says, and they're like, okay, well, what about this regulation? Like I have an answer already for them. So I mean, I, I can perform more quickly and I can begin to like actually expand my, my knowledge base. And that's the way you become an expert. That's the way you kind of chart your path. So I mean, I think for every opportunity that, there's, that seems challenging, it's also an opportunity to say, hey, the question that you got from the partner the reason you got it is because he or she couldn't answer right away. This is your time to shine. This is your time to figure out the answer, get it right, show the client that we can do this type of work. And then the next time it comes in the door, you turn it out quicker without the added cost of, of teaching it to yourself again. Those are great points to make. And I think oftentimes people look at challenges or things that uh, they don't like as much as a negative thing and not as an opportunity. And that's what I love about the words that they use and the way you described it is because it is an opportunity. And I think that the perspective that we take in life, as you do, is if you look at it that way, it makes such a difference in how everything feels and how life is, if you can look at it with that positivity. In, in that same vein, like the partners are the ones assigning you work. But like if, if that thing that I didn't know back in September is like I, I showed the partner that I that I knew what I was talking about. I mean, the next time that question comes in, it goes to me. She's not fishing around saying, okay, which associate knows about ECOA or FICRA? 
is like, okay, Ross knew this last time. Ross is going to do it again. It looks good too. Let's start wrapping up. And one of the questions that I'd love to ask for you to share is what recommendations or advice that you have for students at Muhlenberg who might be thinking about pursuing the kind of career that you have? Yeah, I mean, I will say that you can almost major and minor in anything and then go to law school because the first day everyone's going around the room telling us what they majored and minored in in college. And I mean, you're hearing art history, you're hearing political science, you're hearing Chinese and Russian studies. This is unlike medical school, unlike going into finance. This is not necessarily a career that requires you to have a base understanding of a, of a subset of knowledge to even enter the field, which I think is great. Because, I mean, you get people from all walks of life who end up doing great things in the legal industry. I mean, one of my friends, she studied art history in undergrad. She went to law school with me. And now she is an attorney who represents high-end art dealers. The path was there. I didn't see it. She did, though. And, I mean, I think that's always something that's, like, kind of great. Because, I mean, law is, there's so many things. I mean, and I, I think it's always kind of funny when, like, I'll get a question from my mom and she'll be like, okay, what does this law in this state say? And I'll, I'll say, like, I don't know. I need to look into it. And she's like, well, you went to law school. Why don't you know it? And I'm just like, well, that's because I didn't study a state law in Pennsylvania. Like, I mean, because you go to law school and you get a JD and everyone graduates with the same subset of knowledge, just like what you're tested for on the bar. One thing I would say is that I thought that looking back on it, that it made the most sense to go straight from undergrad to law school. But in hindsight, I would say that if you want to take a year off or a couple of years off to, in between to figure out if it's number one, what you really want to do, I think that's a, a great idea because I, I think when I saw the students who, in my opinion, performed the best or who had the, the best outlook or the most mature outlook about what law school was, it was often those students who took a time off, um, had the real world experience. Because I mean, I think going from the bubble of undergrad to the even more hyper-concentrated bubble of law school um, kind of warps your sense of reality in, in a little bit. Because I mean, in law school, if, if you don't have any other experience, you think every decision that you're about to make is make or break. Whether it's going for law review, whether it's getting an A minus instead of an A on a test, whether it's freaking out about the memo that's due for legal rhetoric. I mean, I remember my friends who were in their 30s and I would be sitting there two in the morning texting them, freaking out about something. They'd be like, what, why are you even worrying about this? Like in the grand scheme of things, like, it, it, this is not what you need to be worrying yourself about. And they've done incredibly well. I mean, they're all at firms, they're all at organizations doing great things and, and being incredibly successful. And I think that if you're going to go to a post-college program in which you really need to immerse yourself like med school or like law school, you can't lose focus of the things that interest you in, in doing so. I didn't necessarily do this like I, I wanted to in law school, but I mean, I had friends who, who still volunteered in law school, who every Thursday night or Friday night, whether it was catching up on sleep or watching TV, like they were doing things that interested them. And I think that if you're going to pursue law school, like don't lose sight of the fact that like before law school, you had interests and, and things that you're still very passionate about. So I, I think that as long as you like take a measured approach, I mean, like obviously prioritize your studies, do well, like, but also understand that it's just law school. Because let me tell you, when I was editor-in-chief, I thought I was the king. <laughs> but you realize that you are only the king to yourself and those who are also in law review. 
but like if if you're interviewing for an OCI position or like a, a position at a firm and the partner who's interviewing you wasn't on the RVO, they don't care because it's all incredibly subjective and, and personal. But what they will care about is that you're a good person, that they can work with you, that you're conscientious and you're thoughtful and that you're deliberate in your actions. I guess my, my ultimate advice would be get out of it just as much practical life experience as you will educational experience and like learning experience. Because you can tell who the lawyers are who are incredibly bookish in law school but had no personal skills. And they're the ones who are not fun to work with. So don't lose sight of the fact that like at the end of the day, you're still an individual. You still need to contribute in a meaningful way and, and be liked by people and be nice to people. But also take the time to, to still pursue your passions. I, I don't know who's someone who's passionate about law school. It, it's hard to be passionate about law school. I mean, you need to do well and you need to get good grades and you need to, to, to do your best. But I don't think there is like always this avenue for you to, to explore your interest in a way that like you get the most out of it that you could possibly get out of it. Don't lose sight of the fact that at the end of the day, like you will graduate one day and you need to be a fully developed, nice person on the other end of it. This episode of 2400 Chew was produced and edited by Sofia Echevarria, a senior anthropology major at Muhlenberg College. It was recorded remotely by Paul Kompaski at the studios of WMUH Allentown, Pennsylvania. Our opening and closing music from Cowboy Bebop is performed by the Muhlenberg College Jazz Big Band. Mm-hmm.